Hey, today we discuss America's growing identity crisis. Are we being trained to hate our country? Why even the 4th of July is now politically offensive? And even country music artists have stopped complaining about their own lives to bemoan America's woes. Plus, we get into the truth about justice in the Bible and the picture of Christ in the life of David, which I believe is the answer for a nation at odds with herself. This is your favorite night of the week, The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. I am beloved, the man they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John I slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling, I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat, welcome to the deep end with Tim Hatch. Welcome in, everybody, on Tuesday night, 7.30. It is the deep end, and you are on Tim Hatch Live, and I hope you are there. This is episode 30 of season four. We are only a few episodes away from the end of the season. Can you believe it? The end of the season is upon us, which means we're just around the corner from season five, which means you better do me this solid, and you better get over to this place, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live, because changes are coming to the channel. Changes are coming to the channel. And you want to be aware of it, get over to youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. No matter where you're watching from right now, please do me the solid and get over there. And like and subscribe, you know how that goes, right? You got to hit that like button. You got to hit that subscribe button. You got to hit the notification bell so that you make sure that you get all the notifications about notifications about when we go live on Tim Hatch Live on the YouTube channel. That's why you got to get over to the YouTube channel. Let me know in the comments where you're watching from. Let me know uh, what your favorite part of your 4th of July weekend. Come on, we need some good news, people. Let me know in the comments what you love about 4th of July. It's time that we celebrate. I think it's time that we celebrate uh, you know, what we have in this country instead of, uh, you know, fall into this trap of hating it. We'll get to that in just a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, make sure that you like and subscribe across all the social media channels, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, YouTube. Okay. Yeah, we come out, we consolidated everything to Tim Hatch Live. So it should be easy for you to find us and, and support us. Couple of reminders. Um, we're changing the channel. Season five, I already mentioned that. We're dividing uh, the deep end up into two segments, Tuesday night and Wednesday night. And a reminder that this Thursday, we have our second bi-weekly episode of 10 Questions with Tim. I really enjoyed last time. I hope you did too. I got a lot of positive feedback from a lot of people. Thank you so much. People coming up to me who are in my church, people on our social media channels who liked it. And I'm so thankful that you did. Help me make the next one great. Send your questions right now to ask at Tim Hatch Live uh, or in the comments below. It's not in two weeks. Ignore in two weeks. It's July 8th, which is exactly two days from today. So 10 questions with Tim, two days from today at noon, lunchtime. So of course you can tune in, right? Because you're at lunch. Just hide somewhere and watch it. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, we're going to get into it now with the first segment of two segments of the Deep End, which which is soon going to be the Tuesday night only segment, Deep End News. So let's get into it, shall we? Deep End News. News and views that don't make us news. Does America have an identity crisis? I say a resounding yes. We are a kingdom divided. There is no doubt. There is no doubt that America seems to be falling in love with the idea of hating herself. <laughs> um, I, I blame a lot of structures 
uh, for this result. I, I, I don't know if I have time to get into them all. I think that parenting has a big part to play in it. I think the breakdown of the family structure, the mom and dad unit raising kids, I blame parents. I blame people who can't stay married and work things out and you know work through their problems. And I'm talking about people with those smaller problems, not physical abuse or serious sexual infidelity or serious drug abuse. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about families who just don't stick together. The government has to do way more for us than ever before because the families are not doing as much as they used to. And uh, the school system, I blame the school system. They are indoctrinating our kids. And I used to be a big proponent of the public school system. I used to, I used to fight people in my church about this, and now I don't fight anymore. And if you want to, if you want to raise your kids in homeschool, I'm, I'm a solid two thumbs up for you because it's getting nuts what they learn in school. In fact, that's what shocked my wife most of all during the COVID crisis, what she saw my youngest son, Jake, at age eight was being indoctrinated to believe from a a taxpayer-funded public school system that had lost its mind in some respects. Anyway, lots of blame can be passed around. I blame the church and I'm a pastor. Look, the church has abuse the sheep prosperity preachers take people's money and abuse uh their power uh there's uh sex offender uh, scandals plenty in the church in leadership protestant and catholic uh I, I i blame apathy on the part of men i blame culture media i blame a lot because we've got a problem in America when even the day that we're supposed to say happy birthday to America is a day in which we see so many leaders and public figures trounce on America. Does it bother you as it bothers me? Let me know in the comments what you saw this past weekend because I'm going to share some stuff. But before we get to it, Toby Keith released a song that kind of sums up what I'm talking about. The title of the song is called Happy Birthday America. Remember when, Amer when, remember when country music artists used to sing about their wife leaving or their dog dying or the bank foreclosing on their house? Well, now they started to sing about the fact that that's all happened to the country. <laughs> America's dog has died. America's wife has left her and or him and uh, and America's bank has foreclosed on its house, at least spiritually speaking. The times have changed. Instead of be bemoaning personal tragedy, country music has now turned to national tragedy. So Toby Keith releases this song and the lyrics go like this. Happy birthday, America. It's the 4th of July. I get to wake up in your freedom, but sometimes I wonder why. Seems like everyone's pissing on the red, white and blue. Happy birthday, America, whatever's left of you. Yikes, Toby Keith. Uh, and then he goes on. You were the darling when you saved the world, World War One and Two. France would just be part of Germany now if it hadn't been for you. Now your children want to turn you into something other than yourself. They burn your flag in the city streets more than anybody else. Later in the song, I love this phrase. He writes, without the helping hand of God, your days are numbered, my old friend. Uh, amen, Toby Keith. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, we're sure going to miss you, girl. You were the best that's ever been. All the broken down cities by the left's design. Ooh, ooh, shots fired. And the right can't seem to get it right most of the time. So shots fired both directions. Well done. Well played, Toby Keith. Well played. Get some! Yeah. Uh, every time I go, uh, all the broken down cities by the left design and the right can't seem. Oh, I already said that one. Every time I go to town and vote, I just come home with the blues, the lesser of two evils. All we ever get to choose seems like everybody's pissing on the red, white and blue. Happy birthday, America, whatever's left of you. Remember when Bill Clinton famously said, I still believe in a place called hope. 
Like we don't even we don't even have that anymore. Like nobody talks about these things anymore. Nobody talks about what's good and what's promising about America. It's, it's not happy times for Americanism, is it? Uh, that's why we have the shelf of civility, by the way. Yeah. Can we can we give me can we celebrate our country? Fourth of July is becoming a political hazard. Consider Congresswoman Cori Bush uh, from Missouri, if I'm not mistaken, who took the fourth of July to sit down with her phone, whip out the Twitter account and tweet the following. When they say, quote, when they say the fourth of July is about American freedom, remember this, the freedom they're referring to is for white people. (laughs) This land is stolen and black people aren't are uh, still aren't free. Okay, um, thank you for making me feel so good about my country on the day we're supposed to celebrate it. A uh, little bit of biblical information here too. It's important to celebrate country's birthdays, no matter how that country got started. I really believe that. I think that actually creates a sense of national pride that is essential for human, just the spirit of the country. Um, the, the the Israelites were commanded to celebrate the Passover every year for seven days. Why? Because it was their birthday where they were set free from Egypt. And there was three annual feasts that they were commanded to celebrate, each one seven days long. Imagine being part of a country where they took seven, three seven-day weeks off to just party for seven solid days. Well, we've lo- we've lost the ability to celebrate in this country. And then we wonder why depression rates are sky high, suicide sky high, people hating each other, ripping each other to shreds on social media and ripping apart the country. Does this help? Does this help anybody feel good? No, it's ridiculous. Remember, it wasn't that long ago. Well, actually it was last year when Colin Kaepernick tweeted out the following on July 4th. Quote, black people have been dehumanized, brutalized, criminalized, terrorized by America for centuries and are expected to join your commemoration of independence while you enslaved our ancestors. We reject your celebration of white supremacy and look forward to liberation for all. Okay, this is a man who made millions of dollars in the NFL talking about the fact that he rejects a celebration of liberty for all because black people have been dehumanized, brutalized, criminalized, and terrorized by American for centuries. For centuries. Centuries. So, So they're still being brutalized and criminalized and terrorized? They're still experiencing that, Colin Kaepernick? Colin, it wasn't that long ago. In fact, this is July 4th of 2011 when you tweeted out, Happy 4th of July, everyone. I hope everyone has a blessed day. What happened between 2011 and 2020 for Colin Kaepernick? What happened? I want to submit to you that we are, we are under a spell by divisive people who are trying to reshape the national the national spirit into one of self-hatred and it's not going to be good for anyone consider this another example the most recent uh edition of the captain america comic okay the word america is in the comic book character and the comic book name just released by the way for the 4th of July, this is from Breitbart.com, title of the article, Independence Day, Marvel Comics makes Captain America say American dream is a lie. So this is their first issue of a new season in which Captain America basically slams the American dream as a false promise. What's the American dream, by the way? In case you're not keeping score, the American dream is that if you work hard and if you, if you study hard 
and or work hard, because sometimes it's not study hard, sometimes it's just work hard, you can succeed in this country. Yes, you will have obstacles. Yes, some people will hate you no matter who you are and no matter what color you are. And yes, there is unfairness abounding in every part of American culture. But if you work hard and you or study hard, your chances are greater that you will succeed and earn yourself a life that you will be proud of. It used to be a meritocracy in this country. And, and now it's just this aim to push us against each other, divide us and conquer us for some, I think, nefarious ends, if you ask me. Anyway, the June 30th, four days before July 4th, the June 30th edition of the Captain America comic has Captain America saying, quote, I'm loyal to nothing except the dream. Here's the thing about a dream, though. A dream isn't real. I'm starting to think America actually has two dreams and one lie. The first American dream is the one that isn't real. It's the one some people expect to just be handed to them, and then they get angry when it disappears, when the truth is it never really exists in the first place. Okay, who are the people who expect the dream to be handed to them? Who are they? You know who they are? They're spoiled, rotten brats, and they typically aren't black people. They typically are white people. <laughs> I got to be honest with you. Entitled spoiled, rotten, trust fund babies. Those are the ones I think you got to identify as the problem here, all right? No, no one's saying, no one, at least from my my uh, experience in being an American, I've never, I've never met another white person, just gonna be honest with you, because I know that's what they're talking about here in this, in this comic. I've never met another white person who thinks that they should just be handed things. Um, anyway, the, the Captain America, this is a symbol of, what should have been for kids a symbol of joy, a symbol of, you know, just innocence, childhood fun, is now a propaganda machine to talk about the fact that uh, we are an unfair country. And it goes on to talk about, it goes on to reference the idea that the American dream with the quote white, white picket fences is a lie that doesn't get along nicely with reality, other cultures, immigrants, and the poor. So it's funny that you mentioned the poor, Captain America, because last I checked, and I that was today, <laughs> uh, Disney has raked in $18 billion net profit from the Captain the, the Marvel Comics series of movies. They bought it for $4 billion in 2009, and they've made $18 billion since. Hmm. So if you're concerned about the poor, there's a real simple solution. Take that $18 billion and divvy it up. Divvy it up. Later in the comic, it says... Uh, Captain America, Steve Rogers saying, we're at our best when we keep no one out. A good dream is shared, shared radically, shared with everyone. When something isn't shared, it can become the American lie. So this is straight propaganda for open borders. This is straight propaganda for literally the John Lennon imagine utopian version of the world. It is ridiculous. Every country has to defend itself. Every country. Um, and this is not anti-biblical for heaven's sakes this is exactly why god establishes the state to protect its citizens from foreign invasions and uh i'm not making generalizations about people who come to this country or dreamers and not not no we should have compassion and mercy for those people absolutely but i am talking about the idea that a country has a right to take pride in itself to believe in itself to you know maybe celebrate the fact that it has what it has especially a country as blessed as america and again, I hate to be, keep beating this drum, but it's amazing how we just spent 30 days celebrating homosexuality, transgenderism, and lesbianism, and asexuality, and pansexuality, and all that. So it took 30 days to celebrate that, and the two days that bracket those 30 days, Memorial Day, 
and Independence Day, now one of them has been turned into this horrifying event for some, I guess. Consider the New York Times, which tweeted out on July 3rd about the American flag. This is New York Times Twitter account. Today, flying the American flag from the, la- the, the back of a picket truck pickup truck or over a lawn is increasingly seen as a clue, albeit a perfect one, to a person's political affiliation in a deeply divided nation. So basically the article is that Trump followers like the American flag, therefore the American flag is bad. (laughs) These are the people who like to say that Trump, these are the people who love to say that Trump lumped everybody into one category, and here they are lumping everybody who supports Trump with an American flag into one category. Now they are evil. Now they are evil. Uh, it, it just gets worse and worse. The New York Times had this as their banner page literally the whole day. This is their homepage for the whole of the 4th of July. Like, not celebrate independence, not, you know what, we still have work to do, not uh, America is great when we believe in ourselves and celebrate, you know, no, 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 nothing like that. Now, the title of the headline article for the New York Times for the July, for the July 4th edition is, the Fourth of July, a Fourth of July symbol of unity that may no longer unite, aka the American flag. Almost like we are being trained to hate our country. Almost like we are being trained by some to hate our country. When when we have an Olympic competitor turn their back on the national anthem, I'm talking about Gwen Berry, the hammer toss participant and third place finisher for the Olympic qualifiers. Yes, she did this as the American. Anthem was played. She turned her back and disrespected the flag. She says that the dis- that the national anthem disrespects Black Americans after the flag protests. Uh, she's um, then later actually they found out decades old tweets <laughs> from Gwen Berry. This is this is why Twitter you got to purge that uh, that that timeline sometimes. Decades old tweets revealed that she had um, mocked Mexicans, Asians, white people, joked about rape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So interestingly enough, when you crucify others, remember what Jesus said? Watch out how you judge others because with the same measure you use, you also will be judged. It's funny thing about Twitter is that it it like keeps alive all of our history so that people can easily dig into it. Like remember the old days when only we and a few close friends used to know the stupid stuff that we said? (laughs) Now everybody can know it. Now everybody can research it and, and almost anybody can get canceled. So anyway, you have Olympic athletes disrespecting the flag. You have the New York Times talking about how the flag is now a symbol of, uh, of, of, of divisiveness. Uh, and then our friends over at CNN, what do they do in anticipation for the 4th of July for the celebration of America's birthday? What did they do? Well, what, what else would they do? They celebrated 100 years of communism China. <laughs> I kid you not. Uh, to... to, to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Mao Zedong's rule and leadership and not leadership but America uh, Chinese communist power CNN put up this interactive web page to commemorate 100 years with with what with 10 moments 10 important moments that shaped the communist party of China with waving flags waving red Chinese flags of happy Chinese people living under a communist regime that is responsible for the deaths of 60 million of their citizens, including a commemoration of Mao Zedong, who is perhaps responsible personally for those 60 million deaths. 
And then this interesting quote from Mao Zedong, quote, a revolution is not a dinner party or writing an essay or painting a picture or doing embroidery. A revolution is a what? What? An insurrection? An insurrection? CNN. Um, I thought that re insurrections were bad. I thought that insurrections were a, an attack on a country's independence and national pride. No, I guess if it's Mao's insurrection, it's okay. They go on to mention, and I want to bring something up that they did mention in the expose, the Cultural Revolution that solidified communist rule in China in the 1960s or thereabout. might have been a little earlier than that. I'm sorry if my, my history is fuzzy here. It's called the Red Guard Revolution or the Red Guard Rebellion. When it looked like communism wasn't going to work and, uh, and people were going to starve and, and uh, the government programs to run society were going to fail, guess what Mao Zedong did? He enlisted young people to start a riot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this from the article on CNN. At least they fairly put this up there. Students from across the country turned on their teachers. Just ask yourself if there anything sounds familiar. Students across the country turned on their teachers who accused of who who they accused of being capitalists or traitors. Anyone who fell foul to the mobs was tortured and abused, forced to publicly confess. Others were locked up in makeshift camps. Some died as a result of the torture. Others took their own lives as the situation escalated. Different groups of the Red Guards began to fight each other using weapons from the People's Liberation Army. So what does ha what what you have to understand? Um, well, actually, let me let me share a little bit more information on the Red Guard Rebellion. This is actually from the Wikipedia page of the Red Guard Rebellion. This is what Mao did. Mao made use of the group as propaganda to accomplish goals such as, and look, and again, ask yourself if this sounds familiar, to accomplish goals such as seizing power and destroying symbols of, of China's pre-communist past, mm -hmm. the four olds. Uh, the four olds were their old customs, old culture, old habits, and old ideas, including ancient artifacts and grave sites of notable Chinese Figures, strangely familiar to America, 2020 and 2021, is it not? Are we not just 12 months removed from this in our own country in which they toppled a statue of Thomas Jefferson, for heaven's sakes, because he's racist? Or George Washington? Because after all, all he did was liberate us from unfair economic policy from Britain. This is what CNN decided to celebrate ahead of the 4th of July. This is where our national voices are leading the discussion. And we wonder why young people are, being, are, are growing up to hate and despise this country. By the way, every national revolution that ended poorly and made more people suffer poverty uh, and, and death was started when the leader of the party enlisted young people to start the fighting check it out you'll find out what i say is true and this is the this is the reason why because dictators typically know that young people are stupid you know the reason why advertisers in this country love the 18 to 34 demographic because it's the most gullible yeah and so they know it and they know that they can rile them up and they know that they have the energy to do a lot of damage and to cause a lot of friction and a lot of problems for a lot of people Hitler's youth, anybody? Mao Zedong's Red Guard? Cultural revolutions that ended up with a lot of people dead and in poverty typically were started when a leader enlisted a generation of young people to start rioting.
Anyway, the the uh, article, the expose, does at least admit that the reform for communist China started when uh, their new leader Deng Xiaoping in the 1970s opened up the Nash the nation and embraced more capitalistic ideas. Yeah, 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 yeah. He he was the one who started to embrace capitalism and free market economics, and and the country started to grow and expand rapidly. But unfortunately, the dictatorial leaders got once again intimidated and started to turn their guns on their own people. Remember Tiananmen Square, June fifth, eighteen nineteen eighty nine. Wasn't that long ago when one man stood down four tanks, kind of symbolic of. A government that tries to take all your guns and all the ammunition and force its propaganda down your throat. And there's one man that's willing to stand them down. And then the article talks about the glories of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. The glories of that display and how it proved once and for all that a dictatorial regime that embraced a liberal economy without losing hold of its power could succeed and the world should take notice. This is CNN laying it on thick and declaring in their Twitter account that President Xi, who has consolidated power and imposed government back onto the people's lives, uh, personal and private, is the quote-unquote real star of communist China. President Xi is the real star of communist China, according to CNN. By the way, President Xi is the one who is forcing Muslims into labor camps. Okay, you can do your own research there. Right now, they're 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 forcing. Uh, I forget Igaro. I forget the name of the, the the area, the region. Forcing Muslims into labor camps. They're forcing Christian churches to take down crosses and replace them with pictures of the dictator. And they just oversaw the release of the largest pandemic in a hundred years, which virtually de- redefined our country and disabled our economy and newly released documents reveal what some have suspected all along. It was part of a plan. Oh, and Dr. Fauci, for some of you who are still fans of his, he once cooperated with the Chinese lab and paid for COVID studies to be done. Yeah. Inconvenient. That truth right there. This is CNN working hard to extol the glories of a communist nation that deprives people of its rights, that imposes its communist leadership, dictatorial ideas on churches and religious people. Just ask yourself this question. Would you ever expect to see CNN do an expose or any or any news outlet do an expose on the glories of America and how she came to be such a wonderful success story, how American capitalism has reached, raised more people out of poverty than any cultural system, economic system in the history of the world. Here's a thought. Here's a thought. Maybe the news media is afraid of you loving your country. Maybe the news media is afraid of you embracing what America stands for. Yes, she's got her warts and her history is blackened by slavery. I 100% agree. But there has been no more prosperous country on the face of the earth that has provided more opportunity for its citizens than this one right here. It's why people still want to flood into this country from literally every other country on the face of the earth. But the news, the, the news media doesn't want you to know that. The New York Times doesn't want you to know that. Years ago, in 2011, a Harvard study was produced that said the following. Fourth of July celebrations are more likely to c- cause children to vote Republican. 
this Harvard study was done back in 2010. Uh, evidently, according to the article, attending a 4th of July fireworks display or a flag-waving parade as a child slightly increases the likelihood that that child will grow up to vote Republican. Is that a problem? Why, why do we need to talk about that? And why, why is it necessary? And who cares, right? According to the article, quote, even a single July 4th celebration boosts the chance of a child turning Republican. One celebration of the country. Now, allow me to get a little bit more political than I typically do on the deep end. Everybody should know this. This is not this is common knowledge. I mean, come on, you'd have to be stupid to deny this. Literally every news outlet in our country, minus Fox News, is a tool or a wing or an arm of the Democratic Party and liberal left-leaning ideals. Literally everybody knows that. For better or for worse, you acknowledge that. Yes, but perhaps there's a fear among the liberal elites that you'll think for yourself, that you'll celebrate what they hate, that you'll want your own freedom and enjoy your own liberty without the government imposing its values and views upon you. The same people who fought so diligently for the separation of church and state are now trying to impose a new world church upon this state. And someone out there needs to stand up and oppose it. Someone out there needs to say something because these people love their power. They love their power just as China's president Xi does. Only they don't just come out and say it. They insinuate it. It's like a disease. It's like a virus. America has an identity crisis. Friends, Jesus told us that a country, a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Luke eleven seventeen. If we continue like this, America's days are numbered like Toby Keith suggests. So it leads me to a recommendation on the deep end, and I like to recommend things. I don't typically recommend a song, but I'm going to do this today. The song is titled, Am I the Only One? Go to your music app right now, and not right now, Wait till the show is done and listen to it. Am I the Only One by Aaron Lewis, a guy who I would never have heard of if he didn't write this song. I can't play it for you because of copyright infringement fears, but the lyrics go like this. Am I the only one willing to bleed or take a bullet for being free, screaming what the hell at my TV for telling me, yeah, you're telling me that I'm the only one willing to fight for my love of the red and white and the blue burning on the ground and other statue coming down in a town near you? Verse 3, am I the only one, not brainwashed, making my way through the land of the lost, who sees it as it is and worries about the kids as they try to undo all the things he did? Kind of like the last line he says, am I the only one who quits singing along every time they play a Springsteen song? (laughs) Uh, The song actually strikes a chord with Americans. A A lot of Americans are seeing the wool being pulled over their eyes by the news media, which seems to hate this country and all it stands for. Because this week, that song was number one on the iTunes list. Aaron Lewis, Am I the Only One? It leapfrogged a bunch of other songs along the way. By the way, on July 4th, I guess there's still a lot of patriotism because Toby Keith's Happy Birthday, America. Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA. Uh, Toby Keith's Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. (laughs) (laughs) kind of ironically, and Ray Charles' America the Beautiful were all trending in the top 10 of the iTunes playlist for July 4th. Good news, you're not the only one who likes to celebrate the country. And for all of her flaws, I think we should still celebrate the country. I think it's a very great country. I think it's the most free country. I think it's a country that has made a lot of strides in the right direction, still has a lot of a lot of ways to go, and in some ways is going in the wrong direction, and we need to call it out when we see it. 
My thoughts on America's current cultural moment are these. Please bear with me for a moment. America has done more good for the gospel than any country in history, and that is true. It sent more missionaries, more money overseas in gospel missions than any country in history. I think that's why God tends to bless this country, because we send so much money in gospel missions through the churches, not through the government, but through the churches across the world. World evangelism exploded in the 20th century through this country. And the great revival brought along, brought along in part by the charismatic and Pentecostal renewal of the early part of the 20th century. America is a great country, but it's not our home, Christians. Remember that. If, you wanna, if, you, if you're sad about what they're making America, just re- let it remind you that you're not actually an American. You're a citizen of heaven. And you're an American second. <laughs> America is flawed because people are sinners. You're never going to find a perfect country. And America is flawed, but it's the only country we've got. And anybody who hates this country should just spend a week outside of it. Literally just spend one week and you'll come home thanking God. I like to tell my church that every time I come home from another country, I get on the, I get on the ground of America and I kiss the ground and I go to Dunkin' Donuts and I buy myself an iced coffee because <laughs> I can. There's nothing like this country. There's nothing. Believe me, I've been to several. I've been to about uh, seven or eight other countries. There's nothing like this country. Maybe we should teach people about the positive elements of America. Maybe we should acknowledge her successes and not just her failures. Like this article from The Blaze that, reaches, that, that reads, Americans gave charitably at record highs in 2020. In a year in which we had the pandemic, in a year in which we had race riots and national discord, Americans gave a record $471 billion to charity in 2020. That's according to the Associated Press. But that doesn't get the headlines, does it? You got to search for that headline. You got to look for it. Because that tells us that America is still a great, generous country. So when you see people like Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush telling you that the American dream is a lie and that it's not a free country, you got to respond like I did on Twitter. <laughs> And I wrote back, America is so full of total freedom that you can get elected to federal office and publicly condemn the citizen that afforded your present status above so many others. What a country. Where else can you do it? Where else can you bemoan the country in which you live as it elects you to one of the highest uh, offices in the land? I think that there's a lot of things we need to do better, absolutely. But I think... What America really needs is something that Americans can't offer it. I think America needs more of what only God can give it. And maybe a little bit more happiness about what it is. Take, for instance, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, who took to the July 4th on a hydrofoil surfboard. That thing is freaking cool, by the way. Man, I want one of those things. I looked it up. It's $12,000. Anyway, he can afford it. He took one out, got onto the lake, held up an American flag and said, yeah, still a great country. Good for you, Mark Zuckerberg. And that's the deep end news. The land of the free is regarded as a slave plantation. The home of the free, the home of the brave is regarded was scared of a virus for 18 months, a virus with a 99.75% success rate in recovery. And that's why we need to turn to God's word for truth. That's why we need to get back to God's word and find truth in an age of lies. And that leads me to the life of David.
Yeah, news was long today. I'm sorry about that, but I love the news. That's why we're splitting up the segments. That way, if you don't like the news, you can skip it. Just join us on Wednesday night for the Deep Dive Bible Study, which will be taking place in Season 5. Sometime around August, we'll be restarting. Uh, got plenty of episodes left for Season 4, so stick with me for the next few weeks. Okay, we're talking about uh, biblical truth about justice in the life of David. Biblical truth about justice. Did you know that God is all about justice? I hope you do. I hope you understand that God loves justice, and all the people clamoring for justice, they do have a point. Justice must be done. Justice must be served. Is there anything more infuriating than not seeing justice come about. It's why people love the Batman movies. It's why people love the uh, Jason Stratham films and the uh, you know Liam Neeson Taken films and the you know a lot of other films that talk about you know the bad guy has to pay and wrongs have to be made right. And the problem with our current cultural moment, the problem with our current nation, is that we don't really know how to execute justice. We think we do. We offer solutions. Politicians make promises. We vote. We get divided. We ext- we, we we vilify each other. But at the end of the day. Only God is really the one who knows what is just and what is righteous and what is equitable. I bring you to Psalm 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make them an an, an everlasting covenant with them. Two sections in the life of David today. And I'm going to be honest with you. These are some strange texts. Okay. This is why you want to tune into the deep dive because we don't skip passages of the Bible that are hard. This one is the, uh, we're going to go into two sections and they're totally crazy. I, I, I was struggling with my prep, to be honest with you. Pray for me to get this right. I think the Lord's given me something from these texts, but I will tell you this, I have never heard a message on either of these sections. I have never even read a sermon on each of these sections. And to be honest with you, the commentaries and study materials that I looked up, they didn't really help that much. I had to rely on the Holy Spirit to get this one. So uh, by God's grace, I I trust that the Lord's going to give you a word today about biblical justice. But we open up with another rebellion in David's kingdom in 2 Samuel chapter 20 or 21. 20. (laughs) It's another rebellion in David's kingdom. Okay, I'm talking about Sheba's rebellion. Now, who is Sheba? We're going to talk about him in just a moment. This is the first account in chapters 21 and sorry, chapters 20 and 21 in 2 Samuel. Remember, the rebellion of Absalom has just ended. And now there's another rebellion afoot. And it's this, this is a rebellion that is led by another Benjaminite uh, who is named Sheba. And we're going to get to the text because I want to unpack what happens because the point of the text is not really the rebellion. And the point of the next passage, which is about Saul's blood guilt in chapter 21, is not about Saul's blood guilt either. It is about someone, though, and we'll get to it in just a moment, but let's get digging into the text before I take too long trying to explain everything to you. Here it is, verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Okay couple things about this, couple fun facts about, about rebellion. First, we're asked to see that, that Sheba is a worthless man. And the me, it's not he's worthless because he led the rebellion. It's worthless because that was, that was his character before the rebellion. 
Notice how, how fragile national unity is. This is very apropos to what we're talking about today in the news. Notice how fragile national unity is. Notice how quickly people rebel and follow a worthless man against David who literally delivered Israel from the Philistines. It, what I'm trying to tell you is it doesn't take much, does it, for men to turn against authority, especially God's authority, especially God's king. There's always someone ready to lead a national rebellion too. That's second. So unity is fragile. And secondly, there's always someone ready to step up and lead people in rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, why is that? The answer is simple. The answer is because the world is under the control of the premier rebel. His name is Lucifer, the God of this world, right? Why do people reject God? Because they are under the auspices of Lucifer's constant influence. I say this to my church all the time. Christians, we are on enemy territory. What I mean is this God, uh, this world is under a false God, that, 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 that specializes in rebellion. He led a rebellion in heaven for heaven's sake. Look, look, if you can lead a rebellion successfully in the presence of almighty God, you can lead a rebellion anywhere. So when you see rebellion, when you see uh, a resentment for authority, good and bad authority, when you see police vilified, when you see the country and its founders and its leaders excoriated on the news, uh, or on in public discourse or in media and entertainment. Please understand that that is just following the course of the God of this world who hates authority. It is nothing new. It is what he specializes in. So he leads this rebellion and all Israel, put it up on the screen again, all Israel just follows, except for Judah. So all Israel... <laughs> withdrew from David, except for the men of Judah, because that's David's clan. Verse three, and David came to the to his house of Jerusalem. The king took his 10 concubines whom he left to care for his house, put them in, under, in a house under guard and provided for them. He did not go into them. He didn't have sex with them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together with me within three days and be here yourself. Okay, so let's just talk about a couple of things because this looks very misogynistic. He's sealing up these women, but, but, but what he's doing is he's protecting them. Okay, this is an ancient tactic for kings. Uh, remember also that Absalom had raped these women in broad daylight to kind of claim the throne. He didn't want that happening to them again. Should David have had concubines? Of course not. That's not the Bible. When the Bible describes something, it's not prescribing it. That's an important point. When the, when the Bible describes Jacob had two wives, it's not prescribing go and have two wives. Okay, when the Bible describes that David had 10 concubines, it's not saying, hey, dudes, go get yourself some, some women on the side. No, no, no. This is just describing that David doesn't want these women to suffer further shame, so he locks them up so that they're never raped again by some insurrection. He doesn't know it's ever going to happen again. We're reading it in hindsight, but David's because, well, this is Sheba. Now, I just got over Absalom's rebellion. Now Sheba's rebelling against me. Who knows what they're going to do to these ladies again, and who knows if there's going to be another rebellion. So he's probably, he's pre not, not probably, he's definitely protecting these women. Okay, verse 5. So Amasa, this is Amasa. Now, remember Amasa was uh, David's nephew who was actually Absalom's general in the insurrection that Absalom led. But David restored him to relationship and then made him in charge of the army. He replaced Joab with Amasa. Okay, but Joab didn't like it. 
And look what happens. Unfortunately, Amasa makes a mistake. Verse 5, Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Zikri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants, pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Job's men and the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now look what happens. Verse 8, And they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon. Amasa came to them to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. Now remember Joab has been replaced by Amasa. And we're also supposed to remember from this incident that Joab, he's kind of a vengeful dude. He's, he's kind of the guy that takes matters into his own hand, doesn't really listen to David in all things. He killed Absalom when David said in plain English, or Hebrew, <laughs> plain Hebrew, in front of Joab, don't kill my son. Have mercy on him for my sake. And Joab killed him anyway. And then Joab had already killed Abner, who was Saul's commander who defected to David when Ishbosheth led a rebellion. We've talked about this in the season already. I don't want to rehash that. What I'm trying to tell you is that Joab is at it again. He kills a mass in cold blood. Look at this. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and a sheet fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. All right. Joab is at it again. Joab is killing people because he has personal vendettas with these people. If, if someone offends Joab, Joab kills him. Now, this is um, blood guilt. And David will not forget this. Now, he's going to need Joab to lead the army because he knows that Joab is influential, but he's not going to let Joab get away with this long term. In fact, he's going to later on at the end of his life instruct his son Solomon to make sure that Joab gets his due. In his final instructions to Solomon, this is in 1 Kings 2.5, he says, uh, moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel. That's Abner and Amasa. He killed, avenging in a time of peace for blood that had been shed in war and putting the blood of, the, of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom and do not let his head, gray head go down to Sheol in peace. So, Joe, so Dave is very clear about this. He, he knows what um, Joab did was wrong. He knows that Joab is a bloodthirsty kind of angry, villainous man, and, and he doesn't want him to get away with it. He wants justice for Abner and Amasa. Just remember that because it's all going to tie together in just a moment. And I just caution you, we're going to read a lot of text today that's going to seem like, what the heck? And then we're going to get to some points. Okay, just just bear with me as we continue in, in the study. Amen. All right. So uh, verse 11, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. So Joab was back in charge. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. He was taken out of the wind, out of the highway, away. So I'm sorry. He was taken out of the highway. All the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So this is an interesting passage. They see Amasa is lying there in his blood. This is the commander that, that David just installed over Joab. Joab kills him. There he is lying in his blood, dying or dead. And the people stop. So the army is, is paused by this. Someone comes over and lays a garment over Amasa so that the army can continue. A lot of weird things in the Bible. <laughs> Verse 14. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel Beth Bethmacha. Okay, so Sheba's the guy leading the rebellion. Remember this. He's a Benjaminite. He's from the tribe of Saul. He's leading the rebellion. It says this. He goes all the way. He's running all the way to Abel, Beth Macca, 
uh, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Makkah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Okay, so, so Joab is doing what Joab does. As for all of his flaws, he's, an ama- he's a brilliant commander and a wonderful tactician and a passionate defender of, of, of the glories of Israel. And he's building up this, uh, this siege work against the ramparts of the city, and, and Sheba knows that his days are numbered, and, and the citizens of the city can see that their days might be numbered. So check this out. War is bad for everybody, right? War is bad for the citizens. Anybody praying for a civil war in America needs to stop because it's bad for everybody. Trust me, it's bad for everybody. People die. Well, the citizens of Abel, Beth Maka, have a wise woman who steps up and says something. Watch, watch what happens here. Verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen. Tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her. And the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them ask counsel in Abel, at Abel, that's her city. So they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is mother in, that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Now this, this is an important passage for this pericope. This, this woman appeals to Joab wisely for the sake of the city to be spared as it has a history of justice and fairness. Remember what she says here. She says... Um, they used to say in former times, let them ask counsel at, at Abel. In other words, this, this place used to be a place where people would get justice. People would get fairness. And you're going to come in, you're going to fight against us for this one dude that's caused a rebellion? She's a very wise woman. Anybody who says the Bible is anti-women has not read the Bible. Because more often than not, you see women stopping foolish men from doing stupid crap. You, you see this constantly in the Bible. I take you back to the first the part of Exodus where two women defy the, 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 the male orders of Pharaoh to kill the male Hebrew children and the women, the, the midwives, don't do it. And that's how you get Moses later on in the story. Anyway, thank God for women. Amen. So she appeals to him. She says, don't kill the city for one man's blood. And she gets Joab's attention. And I love what he says. He says, far be it from me, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. Joe's pretty passionate here. That's not who I am. Yes, it is who you are, Joe. <laughs> but anyway, he says, that's not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joe, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. So she's like, all right, yeah. One man is going to die so that this city can be spared. Remember that. Because if you don't remember that, this passage will this passage will frustrate you. One man is going to die for the city to be spared. And this is also going to tie us into the next passage as we will see, but we're going to continue before we get there. Verse 22, Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So Sheba's rebellion is over because of a woman's wisdom. And they gave Sheba's head to Joab, and he's satisfied, and that's enough. And we skip ahead a few verses, because now we're going to get to another passage that ties, believe it or not, to this passage, even though they look completely different. Like I said, weird stories. This next passage has to do with the blood guilt of Saul. Uh, This is turning the page to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 21. 
The blood guilt of Saul. What do I mean by that? I mean that there was blood guilt upon the house of Saul because of something heinous that Saul had done during his reign and the Lord had not forgotten about it. And in fact, the whole nation started to suffer because of this blood guilt. Now watch what happens. Verse one of chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. There's a horrible famine in Israel for three years. And after three years, David's like, okay, something's up. This is not normal. He sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on uh, the house of Saul. There's blood guilt on Saul, I'm sorry, and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but a remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Okay. What is being referred to here is a moment in Joshua chapter 9. Okay. Uh, Joshua leads the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. They start to destroy the nations. They destroy Jericho and Ai and Bethel and all these cities. They start to conquer. And they get to Joshua chapter 9 and they're just winning left, right, and center. And these people, they're called the Gibeonites. They fake out Joshua and the leaders of Israel. They trick them. And you can go back and read it. But what they do is they basically pretend that they came from a long way away. They heard of the conquest of the nation and they thought, you know what, let's make friends with them before they come beyond the borders of Jordan and they attack us. Now, there's a phrase in that text in Joshua 9 that refers to the fact that Joshua and the elders of Israel do not seek the Lord in this matter. And they make a covenant with the Gibeonites not to harm them. And... Uh, this, this is a, a sad moment for Israel because they, they don't listen to God. They listen to the nations and they are tricked. They are misled. But they enter into a covenant. And they enter into a covenant before the Lord. And they've got to treat them peacefully. This is all in Joshua chapter 9. We'll read a passage in just a moment about it. So what happened? Years go by. The monarchy is inaugurated with Saul in Israel. And uh, Gibeah, by the way, is close to Saul's hometown. And there's a, there's a pretty good case to be made for in the Bible that Saul's father, Kish, was the son of a uh, Gibeonite man and an Israelite woman. And so what Saul may have done, it says here in the zeal of uh, his, um, I'm sorry, yeah, right here. For the, in the zeal for the people of Israel and Judah, Saul struck down the Gibeonites and functionally broke the covenant of peace between Israel's leaders and the people of Gibeah. I told you this is a hard passage. <laughs> so, so, so here's what happens. Uh, David is going to be told, okay, through the Lord that Saul's house needs to pay for Saul's sin regarding the Gibeonites. And the question must be asked. This is an important question. Why should a descendant pay for the sins of his forefathers? Okay, a few scriptures. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to them and serve them. These are idols. For I, the Lord your God, am his jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation who hate me. Now, God does visit some iniquity upon the children for the sins of the fathers. Uh, we think about Dathan and Abiram and Achan's children who died with them as they rebelled against Moses in the wilderness. The Lord also took the lives of David's four sons because of his sin against Uriah, did he not? We just read about that. At the same time, in Ezekiel chapter 18, God is clear. In Ezekiel chapter 18, he says, 
The soul who sins, verse 20, shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, and the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteous for the, of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, each person is responsible for their own sin. So what's the deal with this passage where Saul's descendants should suffer death for Saul's sin against the Gibeonites? Well, the difference lay in a phrase in Joshua chapter 9 that is uttered about this covenant of peace between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. And here's what it says, Joshua chapter 9. Verse 18, but the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders, but all the leaders said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. So there is this phrase, this is an important phrase. We swore to them, we made an oath to God. If we have one thing that God takes seriously, it's oaths and vows that we make to him. In fact, the Bible says it's better not to vow than to vow and not make it, fulfill it. The leaders made a vow and, and Saul, the functional leader of the nation of Israel, broke that vow. So David goes to the Gibeonites. He says, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? David wants to know how to make, the, make this historic wrong right. Now, I want to address something here because I've heard this passage be used by commentators to address an issue we're dealing with in America right now. And the question is this, should America pay reparations to black people for slavery? It's an important question. First off, what are reparations? Uh, reparations, the, the, the functional definition is just making amends for a wrong done to someone. Should we make reparations for d things done wrong to people? Absolutely. The Bible is pro-reparations. When things are done, when something is stolen, you give it back. When you hurt someone, you, you, make, you make amends, okay? I've seen this in the Bible. There's plenty of passages. For instance, Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills or sells it, he repays five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. So you give back more according to the law. Uh, in Deuteronomy 15, when a slave was set free, the slave master was supposed to send him out abundantly uh, 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 blessed from the threshing floor and from the wine presses. And then in the New, Te in the New Testament, Luke Chapter 19, Zacchaeus, remember he stands up before Jesus and says, look, if I've defrauded anybody, I give him four back, four times as much back. And Jesus then responds and says, today salvation has come to this house. In other words, you understand the concept of biblical justice, making amends. So the question about, about reparations in this country, it's a valid one because there's no doubt that slavery has in, in generational effect hurt and disparaged black people in this country. And you understand when you study it, you understand why so many black people do see the American institution for the holes that it has. Now, I have heard a biblical argument for reparations, but what I have not heard are biblical solutions for reparations. So you see, that's the question that must be debated because the question about reparations is always, what is the just and equitable solution for slavery and no, and no one has an answer for that do, do we do we just give money to people and then who do we give the money to like 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 for instance sheila jackson lee from houston uh she proposed a bill introduced a bill to the united states congress that in, in 2019 that they need to study the issue of reparations for a year the year passed they studied for a year nothing's happened nobody has any answers and even beyond slavery there was Things like segregation, redlining, vagrancy laws, Jim Crow. 
that carry the injustice of slavery beyond the legal years of slavery. Even today, there's considerable evidence that black people struggled through the effects of our nation's past. There's no question about that, but the problem is, what is the solution? The problem is, what's the solution? And we must be careful um, to identify passages like this as some kind of, uh, you know, document wherein a nation in the secular realm should pattern itself. So the same people who call for separation of church and state and say, no, the Bible has no place in the public sphere, cannot now cherry pick this passage of scripture for reparations just because they like it. I'm talking about a theologian named Thabiti Anawabli. I'm sorry about the butchering of the name, with all due respect. He's a great theologian from the Gospel Coalition, a pastor. I've never met him, but I value him as a man of God. But he wrote an article in the Gospel Coalition called Reparations are Biblical, and he cites Ezra chapter 6, when Darius the Mede taxed the people to pay for the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple, even though the Babylonians are the ones who destroyed the temple. That's in Ezra chapter 6, verse 8. So he makes the case from that passage that reparations are biblical, but again, he doesn't even offer a solution. He doesn't offer a solution as to what we should do. So, so a couple of problems, too, about seeking reparations in our country is David seeks the Lord in making this wrong right. I got a question for our nation. Are we seeking the Lord or are we just letting politicians pander? I always talk, I always think about this, like the politicians on the left pander about reparations the same way politicians on the right pander about abortion. I, it's just pandering. They never, the politicians on the right never do anything about abortion, but they constantly get votes for it. And the politicians on the left constantly talk about reparations, but they never do anything for it. It's, it's just kind of funny because we don't, we don't seek the Lord. We just seek some human solution. Number two, I, I thought about this. Are monetary payments the right move? Because has money handed to anybody ever helped them? Like really, like, and I'm talking about structurally and societally. Like money given to people. The Bible even says in, in Proverbs, an inheritance quickly gained in the begin, beginning will not be blessed in the end. Handing people money, I don't know if that actually helps anybody. Lottery winners, left, right, and center have destroyed themselves because of money being won. Large sums of money being won. And even from our passage we see in 2 Samuel 21, this is a sin of a personal leader, not the national sin of the people. See, Saul the king sinned against the Gibeonites, breaking a national treaty before the Lord. If you're going to use this passage as an argument for reparations, you run into a lot of problems. But there is a definite beautiful truth to be heard through in this passage, but we've got to continue. And I'm sorry, I'm just going off on a tangent there to just talk about it because you know what? It's something we're talking about. It's what we do in the deep end. We talk about things that are talked about. <laughs> Verse four, the Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold. So we don't want money. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah Saul, uh, of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So they say, you know what? He killed a lot of us. Uh, seven of his sons or grandsons need to die. Why seven? First off, I'm sure that Saul killed a lot more Gibeonites than seven. Uh, but seven is kind of like the biblical number for completion. Secondly, Saul did not have many sons left. And uh, secondly, the the issue is not money or monetary payment. The issue is blood guilt. The issue is the soul, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, according to the law. So it goes on. 
But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom he bore to Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth. That's a different Mephibosheth, by the way. And the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalothite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay. A lot of problems for Americans with this text. <laughs> why should these sons die? Uh, why should they pay for Saul's sins? Okay, there's a good chance that Saul's sons and grandsons were part of the army that decimated the Gibeonites. So I'm sure that they were not guiltless towards the Gibeonites. Secondly, this is how God acted in the Old Testament. This is how God acted in ancient times. This is, this is a, an age of history where God operated within the brutal confines and contexts of the ancient world. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That's not the New Testament principle. That's not the New Covenant principle. That's Old Covenant principle. But secondly, um, what you see here is, is that Jesus, I'm sorry, is that David is sparing Mephibosheth. And this is the pas- This is what the passage wants us to see. Mephibosheth, the son of David, with whom, uh, son of Jonathan, the son of Jonathan, with whom David had a covenant agreement, is spared through the covenant David made with his father is pointing us to the gospel. It's pointing us to our true David, Jesus, who made a covenant with the father and presents that covenant to us, wherein we are spared the wrath of God through that covenant. We are Mephibosheth. We are Mephibosheth. We are Mephibosheth. Remember Mephibosheth got seated at the table in David's house. Remember he got blessed with all the blessings of David's that David could give him from the house of Saul. And remember that David, one time and again, steps in on Mephibosheth's side. Here's how you're supposed to read the life of David. You aren't David. I'm not David. We don't kill Goliath. Jesus killed Goliath. We don't get ourselves to the table. Jesus gets us to the table. We don't bless ourselves. Jesus blesses us. That's the point of this passage. And in a world of blood guilt, in a world of tooth, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, in a world of vengeance, in a world of us versus them, in a world of social injustice, left, right, and center, we Christians remember that we are the objects of God's grace when we did not deserve it. We received not justice, we received mercy through the justice of Jesus. And that's what this passage is asking us to see. Um, just another point, final passage that we're going to look at, verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day, or the beast by night, field, be, beast of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day that Philistines killed Saul on Gil- Gil- Gilboa. So David, even though he's the one responsible for bringing justice to the Gibeonites uh, at the cost of Saul's sons, he then honors Saul and his son Jonathan by reburying his bones in a proper burial site with these seven sons who have just been slain for the blood guilt of Saul on behalf of the Gibeonites. So the question must be asked, as I'm sure you're asking right now, what on earth is all this saying? (laughs) If you've made it this far into this episode, God bless you. You are a true deep ender. You have a rebellion that is squashed really quickly because the one leading the rebellion is handed over to spare a city. 
one man dies for the safety of the city. Number two, you have an impetuous general in Joab taking an innocent life out of his own personal vengeance. And then David later on in life calling for justice for that, for that crime. And then number three, you have a generation's old blood guilt paid for with the blood of Saul's sons and grandsons to remove a famine from the land. All the elements of the stories are intended to tie them together for us to remember one simple thing. And this is, this is the key. This is the interpretive key for the Bible, for all Christians. The Bible is about Jesus. <laughs> the Bible is about Jesus. David points us to the king we need in a world saturated by rebellion. Okay, we've already talked about this, but I want to talk about it again. We live in a world saturated, dominated by rebellion. It comes standard to the human condition. And I would suggest to you, I would submit this to you, that all injustice in this world is the fruit of a cosmic rebellion that happened before we got here. That cosmic rebellion was Lucifer's rebellion against God in heaven. We feel the effects of Satan's rebellion every single day. Sheba's are a dime a dozen. Sheba's, sons of Saul, who rebel against the true David, they're everywhere. They stir up strife. They create division from President Xi in China to the left and right pundits of this country right now. They, they, they're, they're people who, who traffic in division because they want power, just like the, the devil does. Sauls are also common, seeking their own national glory. They abuse others and even legislate injustice, such as Saul enacted upon the Gibeonites. Consequently, you will feel the effects of cosmic rebellion your entire life. You will. You will be betrayed. You will be hurt. You will have wrongs committed against you. But here's the ultimate lesson of the text. No one, and I mean this, you got to see this, no one pursued justice in this, in this section of Scripture except for David. No one. David brought justice to the Gibeonites. David would bring justice to Joab for killing Amasa. David sought the Lord's favor in the midst of a nation ripe with pain and agony because of the injustices of the past and present. If there's any hope to be found for any injustice, it is to be found in our true David, Jesus. Now here's the best part. Jesus seeks your justice. He seeks justice for you. He does, he really does. Uh, he will do a couple things for you in regards to justice. He will make all things work together for your good and he will repay everyone for the evil they have done. Isaiah chapter 42, verse one to five. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice and make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A, a fainting, burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Let the politicians campaign on their false hopes of making things right. They cannot. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, Repay evil, no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peacefully with all. Behold, beloved, I'm sorry, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There is a God in heaven who is working for your justice and writing that cosmic injustice every day. And one day will ultimately bring it to a culmination at the last day. Yet, 
let us never miss this point. And this is perhaps the most important of all. Jesus is the one who died and was exposed for our sins. And it is he who commands us to forgive all who sin against us. You see, all the calling for reparations and justice and all these things, whether they are valid or not, it is my pastoral concern that we don't look upon one group of people as innocent, pure, and righteous, and one group of people as violent, wicked, and evil. And then we lump sum them into these groups. That's what. That's why I covered critical race theory on this podcast, on the show a while back, because that's exactly what it does. All white people are racist. And all, what, non-white people are innocent, perfect, and just. See, we, we got to avoid these extremes because that's the human method. And what the gospel reminds us every day, every time we hear it, is that Christ suffered for us. Christ the righteous suffered for you, the unrighteous, black, white, yellow, brown, red, doesn't matter. He did that so that he could bring you to God. Because if you don't come back to God, you'll never be right in this world. And that's, I think that's what we need to hear from this passage. There is a, there is a God of justice who's right now working things for your good if you love him and are caught according to his purposes and there is a God who will right every wrong at the last day and there is one to whom you can turn to in the midst of your injustice pray to and seek that he might bring to light that which has been done wrong against you that's the episode if you've stayed this long I, God bless you there are rewards in heaven for you <laughs> I thank you for being here. Make sure you check out TimHatchLive.com and all the social media pages at Tim Hatch Live. And if you would do me a solid favor and support The Deep End, these are still the same ways you can support The Deep End, the cash tag and the PayPal, or just go to thedeepend.tv slash give, support, help it. Would really appreciate it. Check out the swag at TimHatchLive.com. And uh, there's a store there. Uh, also, the Deep End shirts, we're making more of them. I usually wear them. I didn't wear one today, but they're Deep End shirts. They're coming to the swag shop. So check it out, timhatchlive.com. Uh, this was episode 30 of season, uh, season four of the Deep End. And I'm so glad that you were here. And I look forward to seeing you next time on the Deep End. Thank you for watching this episode of the Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. And let's be honest, you really enjoyed it. So click that subscribe button, click that like button, and also the notification bell so that you can always be aware of when we go live next. The Deep End is made possible by viewers like you, so consider giving today. I look forward to seeing you next time on The Deep End.